invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. Before we begin our time in God's Word, would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord God, we echo the words of David in Psalm 119, asking you to teach us, Lord, the way of your statutes. Help us to keep them to the end. We pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding so that we might keep your law. Help us to observe your word with our whole heart. Help these words not just to go in one ear and out the other, but would you plant them deep within us that your word might be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. First John, not the Gospel of John. First John chapter 1. If the page right next to it is Luke, you're in the wrong spot. We need First John chapter 1. The letter that John wrote. First John chapter 1. Many of us love the routines of life. The, the structures and predictability give us a sense of comfort each day. Many of you drive the same way to work. You eat the same thing for lunch. Often we work with the same people and there's great comfort in that. Some of you shop at the same grocery store and you know right where everything is. And you come home to the same house. At least you hope you come home to the same house. There's a sense of predictability. There's a level of comfort in that. But how do you react when that routine gets compromised? The road you take to work every day is closed for construction. And it's going to be three years until it's open again. A new supervisor takes over your department and starts implementing new policies that totally change how you do your work on its head. The grocery store doesn't have what it usually has, or even worse, they rearrange the whole store and aisle five doesn't have everything that you need anymore. You move to a new house. Or you go through some other major life change. You, you retire. You graduate high school and you go to college. You send a child off to college for the first time. Or you see one of your children get married. All of these are major life changes. Whether they're small and insignificant and minor, like not having peanut butter and jelly after you've had it for 473 consecutive days at work, or whether it's a major thing, a major event that happens in your life, like you retire from a job you worked at for 30 plus years. We've all experienced the uneasiness that those sorts of major changes bring in our life. Those changes can make us feel vulnerable or even disoriented. You search for the new normal in those times. But think with me about how you would react if that sort of major change happened here at church. How would you feel if one day someone from this church stood in this pulpit and they shared with you some new details about salvation and the gospel? They, they told you things about Jesus' life that contradict what the Bible says. They tell you you're not that bad of a person and that Jesus' atoning work isn't that important. You just need to imitate his moral standards. You just need to do what he did. Basically, they stand up here and they completely contradict the essence of the gospel we read about in God's word. How would you react? I don't know about you, but I would be deeply disturbed. I would... Be concerned. There would be an uneasiness. 
of vulnerability. I, I wouldn't know who to trust or if what I believed in the past was actually true. Who should I believe? What should I believe? What I just described happened to the people that John is writing to in 1 John. John writes to a group of believers who have been affected by false teachers that were a part of their church. They started spreading false teaching about the Gospel. The false teachers were removed from the church and in their wake there is this confusion, this uncertainty, and this doubt. John wrote the letter of 1 John to encourage and comfort these believers. He wrote this letter to help them find their footing regarding what is actually true. We're going to begin a series in 1 John and the opportunities that I have to preach. We're going to work through this letter through the coming year. And I'm looking forward to us seeing the comfort that John provides in knowing what is true. This letter is written to help believers persevere in their faith, to have confidence in Christ, to know what we have believed, and to stand on what the Scriptures say. It's for us to have confidence in who Christ is and what He has done. And for us to have confidence of how we should live in light of who Christ is and what He has done. So would you follow along with me as I read 1 John chapter 1 in its entirety. 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. In our text this morning, the main idea that John wants to get across to us is this. Jesus provides the foundation for fellowship and joy with God and others. Jesus provides the foundation for fellowship and joy with God and others. Notice John's purpose in writing this letter in 1 John 5.13. He says, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So how is 1 John 1 going to help advance this? It's all about the Word. 
We see first the manifestation of the word in verses 1 through 4. The manifestation of the word. The word is not a myth or an abstract concept. The manifestation of the word. Notice how John does not begin his letter. We don't find a salutation. There's no identification of the intended audience or even a general greeting. He just dives right in. And he does that for a specific reason. There is a rhetorical impact that he is hoping to get to his audience by just jumping right in. John has a laser-sharp focus in writing this letter. He wants his readers to be impacted by a message. He wants them to be grounded in a reality. John's writing to a church that has experienced a spiritual earthquake, as it were. What are they to believe? Who are they to trust? How are they going to recover from the false teachers that were a part of their church? He starts by talking about the manifestation of the Word. The structure of these first four verses shows us two things. The first thing that we see as we look at the manifestation of the Word is the object of John's message. Who, or I'm sorry, what is he writing about? What is the object of John's message? He, he is all pumped to declare a message to them. This thing that we've heard and that we've seen, we declare to you. He says that three times in these four verses. So there's the object of John's message. The second thing that is revealed in, in the structure of these verses is the purpose for his writing. Why is he writing these things? So the object and the purpose of the manifestation of the Word. First, the object of his message. The object of his message is Jesus Christ. But if you look in verses 1-4, through four, you don't see the words Jesus Christ until the end of verse 3. Is Jesus Christ the object of his message? Let's look closer at the text. You see how 1 John begins, that which was from the beginning. Does that sound familiar to you? Earlier this morning, Jeff read for us from John chapter 1, which begins, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's a similarity in how the Gospel of John begins and 1 John begins. But even further back than that, think of how Genesis chapter 1 begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That which was from the beginning is the object of John's message. John alludes to Jesus in describing him as from the beginning. The beginning of the gospel record. The beginning of the creation of the world. All the way back even before the world was formed, Jesus Christ has been stable and constant throughout that time. This is not a new message or a novel message. That which was from the beginning. John then describes how he related to this message in four additional and even peculiar ways, all of which begin with the word which. That which was from the beginning. And then he goes on, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. These four ways perhaps seem odd. It's one thing to hear a word. How often do you see what you hear? 
Even more, how do you touch a word that you hear? All four of these ways describe how John and the other disciples witnessed Jesus, the Word, while he was on this earth. They didn't just hear what he said, they saw him with with their very eyes. They looked upon him, that is, they perceived intently, they studied intently what he was doing. He wasn't background noise to them, they were fixated on what he was doing and He says, our hands have handled. Jesus got, or I'm sorry, John got to shake Jesus' hand. There's a certain level of validity then that his account of what Jesus was like and what Jesus taught has. He was there. John gives us a clue that the object of the message is in fact Jesus at the end of verse 1. Notice what this message is concerning. It is concerning the word of life, or it is about the word of life. We know this is a reference to Jesus because of what John writes in his gospel. We read earlier in John 1 verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In John 14, 6, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. In John 10, 10, Jesus says that he came so that his sheep might have life. Jesus is the word of life. He is that life-giving word. In verse 2, John and the other apostles go on the record as an eyewitness regarding Jesus. He says, The life was manifested. We have seen and bear witness to you. He is taking the stand, as it were. John was willing to stake everything on what he observed about Jesus. He was manifested, Jesus was, as the light. And Jesus is himself eternal life. John connects that, as we saw in John 1.4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. We get to verse 3, though, and verse 3 is odd because it almost sounds like John goes back to the very beginning and starts all over again. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. It's notable that these phrases in verses 1 through 4 are written in the plural. We have heard, we have seen, we have looked upon. John have multiple personalities that he's writing as he's taking this in? The we, the use of these plural actions serves to ground the truthfulness of Jesus' revelation not only in John's witness. It's not just him that has this testimony, but in the apostolic witness, the witness of the 12 disciples who for years walked with Jesus and listened to Jesus and observed what Jesus did. It would be easy to discredit one man's testimony. It's possible that the false teachers had sought to do just that. Say, yeah, John tells you this, but really, this is the truth. Here, John anchors the message of Jesus as the word of life in the testimony of the apostles. There is harmony, not just in what he has to say, but in what the apostles themselves recorded about Jesus. This implies that what John is about to write is authoritative and trustworthy. These believers who are reeling from false teachers showing up in their church of all places 
can cling to this authoritative, trustworthy message John is about to deliver. John wants to declare Jesus the word of life to the believers he's writing to. He he focuses on Jesus. Jesus Christ is the object. But why is John writing and declaring this message? I mean, that seems a little redundant, doesn't it? Like he's he's already these people have already heard about Jesus. Why wouldn't he go on the defensive and start like poking holes in all of the false teachers' arguments? Why does he go back to Jesus? What is his purpose for this message? Well, we see two purposes in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, that which, we, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that, that's a statement of purpose, you also may have fellowship with us. John wants the believers to have fellowship with us. Namely, the apostles and other true believers. That there would be a harmony of fellowship with us. The word fellowship there is an interesting word. In our culture, we most readily associate fellowship with like food or a social gathering. We're going to have a time of fellowship after the evening service. The idea of this word, though, is deeper than the surface-level conversations and relationships you might have at a food fellowship or a casual gathering. This word has the idea of having a close, deep relationship based on common interests and purpose. We're going the same direction. We have fellowship. We are on board with the same things. We have fellowship. Think about what John's saying here. He has declared to them the message of Jesus, the word of life, so that they would have a close association with the shared beliefs of the apostles' teaching. Why is he starting with Jesus? Because Jesus is the basis for fellowship with the apostles. If he doesn't start with Jesus, if the believers at this church abandon Jesus, they don't have fellowship with John and the apostles. John wants there to be harmony between what was taught by the apostles and what is believed by the saints he is writing to. But, his, saint, his opponents might object, what makes the apostolic teaching about Jesus so much better than what we have to teach? John, why is your writing about Jesus so much better than our writing about Jesus? John's answer is the end of verse 3. He writes so that they would have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John's answer here is we have a close association with the Father and with the Son. Our line of teaching aligns, the truthness of our teaching aligns and is in close fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Think of what a strong argument that is. Basically, John has just claimed that real, genuine teachers of Jesus Christ associate themselves with the apostles' teaching. They don't abandon the apostles' teaching. They embrace the apostles' teaching. This is both an invitation to John's readers and a warning to the false teachers. But this isn't the only reason why John is writing this message. Look with me in verse 4. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. There's another statement of purpose. In order that your joy may be full. That raises two questions. First, 
whose joy would be full or complete. It could be the apostles. And you may have a translation that reads that our joy may be complete. Or it could be the recipients. And that's what we see in the New King James. It reflects that your joy may be complete. Whose joy would be full or complete. I don't think these two options are mutually exclusive. I don't think John is pitting himself against the believers and saying, well, it's either your joy or my joy. There's no reason why both can't fit in this verse. Those saints who follow sound apostolic teaching will have joy to the brim. And the faithful apostles of whom John represents will have their joy filled to the brim as they watch the faithfulness of these believers. So it's a a mutual joy. The second question that we have to answer, though, is how would their joy be complete? It's one thing to say, hey, I want your joy to be complete. It's another thing to unpack how that joy is going to be complete. This idea of complete joy or full joy is an idea that Jesus says several times that John records in John 15 and 16. Whether it's abiding in Christ in the vine and you do that so that your joy may be full. Whether it's asking and receiving in prayer so that your joy may be full. Or whether it's His desire, Jesus' desire for His disciples to bear much fruit. All of this is so that you might have full joy. And it's this idea of abiding in Christ that John has in mind as your joy being full. When you are centered on and fixed on Jesus, when you are abiding in Him, not whatever novel teaching and and doctrine comes up, but when you are abiding in Christ, your joy will be full. This fits perfectly with what John has just said. If his audience accepts his faithful witness to Jesus, the word of life, then they will abide in Christ and they, just like John, will have their joy complete. Their joy will be full. But not only in verses 1-4 through do we see the manifestation of the Word, we see in verses 5-10 through the proclamation of the Word. The proclamation of the Word. The Word is not merely a statement. It's not something to just be received up here. Verse 5 gives us the message that John wants to say. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Boom. There it is. But what does that mean? Why is that John's message? This statement frames the remainder of the chapter. It frames the remainder of the letter, really. It sets in place a fundamental reality about God's nature. God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. In John's writings, the use of light is closely associated with life. There are multiple places, both in this letter and back in the Gospel of John, where those two things are tied together. For John to describe God as light sets him in direct opposition to that which is darkness. Those who have the light have life. So for God to... For John to say that God is light is for him to say God is life. 
Light and life are two realities that John is going to continue to develop through this letter. And we see that in in verses 6 through 10, there is this contrast between darkness and light. Along with this light and dark language, though, we also see a contrast between that which is true and that which is false or that which is a lie. Both are important in John's writing. The the light and darkness language and the truth and lie language because they help create a distinction between true followers of Christ and those who are not. Can there be any overlap in this? Well, let's think about light and darkness for a second. What is the overlap between light and dark? There is none. Let's think about the concept of a truth versus a lie. Is there any overlap between something being true and it being a lie? No, both of these ideas are mutually exclusive things. What John is getting at here is that The message about Jesus is not just a good word to be believed by the head. It's a message that is intended to affect the desires and actions of the believers. We don't just need more knowledge about God. We need our lives to be affected by that knowledge. And we see that as John moves on from God is light and in him is no darkness at all to verse 6 where he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. We see verse 7, he talks about walking in the light. The idea that our lives are to be affected by the truth of the message of Jesus Christ is built into the idea of walk. That word walk has the idea of a pattern or a lifestyle. The way you live your life. So do you live your life? Is your lifestyle in darkness? Or is your pattern of life, the way you live your life, your lifestyle, is it characterized by walking in the light? John puts that forward for his audience to wrestle with. If John's readers believe his message about Jesus, the word of life, then he says they will experience fellowship with God. That's the reason he's writing this. So that you'll have fellowship with us and we have fellowship with God. So, if we say that we have fellowship with him, and John says, all right, hold on. Let's let's unpack what that means. How can you tell if you have fellowship with God? Are there markers or tests that indicate if someone indeed has this close relationship with God? And John, in the rest of chapter 1, unpacks three conditional statements to try and encourage the believers to whom he's writing. And he also addresses some of the false teaching that came in. The first conditional statement is there in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, John says, we lie and do not practice the truth. The very thing that you're trying to get to, you miss. In light of what John has just said in verse 5, it would make sense for someone who claims fellowship with God to walk in the light. Because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Notice that these are mutually exclusive claims. Someone who walks in darkness cannot claim to be aligned with the light. 
Light and dark do not mix. In the same way, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the purity of God do not mix with sin. For someone to claim fellowship with a holy God and walk in for their manner of life to be characterized by sin is a blatant lie. It's just like saying you can't see your hand in front of your face, but the light's on. This is an invitation to John's readers to continue walking in the light. He is inviting them. You want to go down this way. You want to walk in the light. You don't want to be someone who claims to have fellowship with God and walks in the darkness. Because then you're a liar. The truth isn't in you. I want you to embrace the truth so that you can have fellowship with God. So that your joy can be complete. So verse 7 points us back to Christ. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 7 is the means for being in fellowship with God. Those who walk in darkness walk in their sin. But those who walk in the light are cleansed from their sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the heart of what John and the apostles heard and saw and touched and what they're declaring to these believers. For those who claim to have fellowship with God but walk in darkness, they actually experience broken fellowship with God and one another. So John says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. His encouragement then is to walk in the light because the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. We come to the second statement in verse 8. Second conditional statement. If we say that we have no sin. This is an interesting statement because this assertion that we have no sin is an idea that builds on what John has just said. It it would be easy for a false teacher to take what John has just said and say, okay, if believers walk in the light just as God is in the light, does that mean Christians cannot sin? Does it mean that if I walk in the light because God is light and in Him is no darkness at all, if I'm closely aligned with that, if I have fellowship with that, does that mean the bad things that I do aren't sin, they're something else? Does that mean I become an uh, an ultimately better person and sin isn't a thing for me anymore? Can we whitewash our sin and write it off because we have fellowship with God? John here denies this assertion and its implications. If we say we have no sin, what does he say? He says, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. It's it's totally missing in action. To say that we have no sin is to deceive ourselves, indicating the truth is not in us. Rather than deny that we have sin, what does John encourage his readers to do in verse 9? Instead, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see how that builds off of verse 7? If the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin then I have a way not to minimize my sin, but to acknowledge my sin and have Jesus deal with my sin. 
He takes it. I don't have to try and sweep it under the rug. It can be gone. John points to Jesus and he exhorts his readers, he exhorts us to confess our sin, knowing that Jesus will forgive and cleanse them from their sins and unrighteousness. Those who walk in the light will be those who don't deny their sin. They won't say, I I don't have sin. No, those who walk in the light will be those who run to Christ and confess their sin regularly. Because the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And that brings us to verse 10, the last conditional statement. If we say that we have not sinned, this assertion is slightly different from verse 8. The time in verse 8 is present. It's something that is concerned with the here and now. Whereas verse 10 is perfect and it has in mind not just the current, but also the past history of sin. It might be easy for someone to say, well, I haven't sinned now, or I have sinned now, but not in the past. To conveniently forget about the history of sin. And John heads that idea off at the pass. His point is this. No one can have fellowship with God and deny their sinfulness. You sit here this morning and you say you have fellowship with God. Do you deny the fact that you are a sinner? John says if you walk in the light, you don't deny your sinfulness. You embrace the idea that you are a sinner and you run to Christ with that sin. Because he's provided a way for it to be taken care of. These last two statements in verses 8 and 10 take aim at false teaching concerning the nature of sin. If you're not really that bad of a person, if you're not a sinner, do you need Jesus' death on the cross to atone for your sin? No. It's a relatively small thing. You can just brush it off. And that's what the false teachers were teaching. The atoning work of Christ isn't necessary. It's It's overblown. But the message that John witnessed, that he heard, that he handled with his hands, that he saw with his eyes, is serious. Sin is serious in everyone. And the atoning death of Jesus Christ provides the remedy for the sin. John heard Jesus' words, it is finished. He saw Jesus' suffering. We must then ask the question, how are these conditional statements supposed to be encouraging and comforting. These conditional statements seem to be guilt-inducing and anxiety-causing. I mean, we look at these and we don't walk away with, like, yay, I'm so encouraged. You walk away thinking to yourself, things are much worse than maybe I first realized they were. So if John's writing so that their joy might be full, If he's writing to encourage them, how are these words encouraging? Where's the comfort, John? The comfort is in the implied invitation. The invitation in these verses. John doesn't say these words as an indictment. He says these words as an encouragement. The provision for cleansing has already been secured through Christ's death. Rather than pull back from Christ, John wants us to view Christ as the one that we need most when we sin. 
His blood cleanses us from our unrighteousness. And He is faithful and just to forgive us from our sin. That's how these words are encouraging. Because it's not like John is saying, you guys are such bad people. I don't even know how I could tolerate being with you. You guys are the worst. He says that and then points them to Christ. And the invitation is, be in fellowship with the light by seeing what Christ has done and going to Christ with that sin. Don't suppress your sin and push it under the rug. Put it out in the open and give it to Jesus so that He can cleanse you from it and forgive you of it. So what do these words mean for us? This text focuses our attention on Jesus Christ. He is the word of life who has come to cleanse us from our sin and forgive us through his death on the cross. I wonder, friend, have you come to Jesus to have your sin forgiven? Maybe you deny your own sinfulness as you look at the faults of others. You look at everybody around you and you say, ah, they're a bad person. They're a bad person. They're a sinner. They have faults and flaws. The reality is that you have sinned. What are you going to do with your sin? How are you going to deal with it? You can't sweep it under the rug. You can't minimize it. You can't deny its existence. It's there. John's solution is to point you to Christ. The one who will forgive you of your sin. Unsafe friend, I want to encourage you this morning to trust in Christ for salvation. Come to Him with your sin. Don't deny that you're a sinner. Acknowledge your sin. Repent of your sin. Confess it to Christ so that He might forgive you. That He might grant you fellowship with Him as opposed to separation from Him. Fellow saint, you need Jesus as much today as you did the first day that you were saved. When was the last time you confessed your sin and sought God's forgiveness that he offers through Jesus? How tempting is it for us as believers to seek to minimize or excuse our sin? That's not what John's getting at here. John wants us to go to Christ with that sin and have him forgive it. Maybe you are here this morning and you just you feel like there's just been a ton of guilt that's just been dumped on you from this text this morning. I mean, there's so much sin and I'm so much of a worse person than I thought I was. Can I encourage you? Reject the notion that your sin prohibits you from coming to Jesus. The exact opposite is true. Your sin is what qualifies you to come to Jesus. Jesus only forgives those who realize they're sinners. So if you sit here this morning and you feel guilt on your shoulders, Jesus wants to forgive you of your sin. So go to him. Confess your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive your sin. And he'll cleanse you of it. Brother and sister in Christ, I encourage you this morning, come to Jesus and confess your sins. Don't hide them. Don't sweep them under the rug. Give them to Jesus. Church family, whether you're at school, kids, school's coming tomorrow because there's no snow in the forecast today. So whether you're at school, whether you're at work, whether you're at a co-op that's starting up soon if you're homeschooled, 
Whether you're at the hair salon having your hair done, whether you're sharing a meal or chatting with your neighbor, say what the Bible says. Stand up for what the Bible teaches. Resist the temptation to back down in our day of moral relativism. You have the sure word. You have that which was from the beginning. You have the trustworthy and authoritative truth. It's not just your truth. Friends, we have a sure and reliable foundation in God's word that tells us the truth. Saints, God has saved you to be in fellowship with him. And that implies fellowship with one another. Church, fellowship with one another is important. Is that something that we as a church easily write off in favor of other opportunities? Or is it something that we cherish and foster? Do we look for opportunities to have deep relationships where we share common interests and mutual purpose? In a room this big with all of you in here, there's very little that we are going to share in common other than Christ. But we have that shared purpose of seeking to make Christ known. And we have that mutual interest of learning more about Jesus, of seeing and savoring Jesus. What unites us as a church is our common fellowship with God as children of light. And so we are to encourage one another to walk in the light as He is in the light. Finally, be encouraged, fellow saint. Be encouraged that in an age of change and chaos, you can have fellowship with God through the unchanging truth of the Gospel as revealed in the Bible. What an enormous privilege that is. Cling to God's Word and follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Jesus Christ and His death on the cross that provides the opportunity for us to be cleansed from our sin, from our unrighteousness, to be able to have fellowship with You for our sins to be forgiven. Lord, please encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ to run to You with their sin. To acknowledge their sin. So that we might have fellowship one with another. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.